Let's begin with a word of prayer together as everybody comes in to get settled down uh, for the presentation. Father in heaven, we're grateful for this opportunity to come and meet together at the Amen conference here. And we pray that your spirit would be here to bless our interaction and our, our discussions, our thinking, and our, our desires. Uh, may we be guided with your word and inspiration to know how to navigate these tough, challenging times in Earth's history. We are privileged and humbled to be used by you in these hours and ask only that you would sharpen us as iron on iron to make us uh, better tools as the days pass and time ticks out. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what if I told you that today, or say by the end of the year, the Seventh-day Adventist Church could bring online and operate a global health institution for evangelism that could serve the needs of four to five million people per day year-round, and that would it be done in a sustainable manner, scalable up or down, depending on financial conditions, whether or not you could buy or sell, whether or not you had debt or credit wouldn't matter. It would be done in a fashion that was totally lacking any questionable or harmful practices. It would be so safe that God himself could re refer, do a clinical refer, referral to any of these locations because it was so safe that he himself would sanction it for any of his sin-sick children to go and, and stay there. So before I outline the plan I think that we could do to make that happen, let me tell you about the unsustainable, unsanctioned, unscalable system of medicine that I and I think most of you perhaps are familiar with. I would caution to say that I can only speak for myself I do not want to convey the idea that I'm accusing anyone here of doing anything wrong, but you must yourself decide whether or not today you are practicing the style of medical missionary work that you believe God has called you to do. Amen. So right now I am, as a way of introduction, they asked me to do an introduction. Right now I'm director of anesthesiology at a small community hospital in Crossville, Tennessee. We're licensed for 110 beds. We're lucky to have 30 people spend the night. At this point, we're $1 million year-to-date in the hole. Not bad. Last year, we were $3 million in the hole at this time last year. The AHA website that I looked at, uh, American Hospital Association, indicates that in this nation, there are 915,000 registered beds and that it costs us $859 billion a year to operate those beds. That comes out to just under $1 million per bed per day. Does that sound sustainable to you? The same website, American Hospital Association, indicated on a chart that within the years 1992 to 2012, patient margins were all negative except for one year. 2012, and the margin was 0.7%. How many know what a patient margin is? Margins are the financial indicators. If you don't go to your staff meetings at your facilities, you need to go because that's where the financial reports are given, and it'll give you a sense of just how close you are to the precipice of not having employment. <clears throat> the patient margin is the number of dollars that come in 
for giving patient care. Okay? If you divide that by the expenses of the hospital and then divide that by the revenue, you get your patient margin. That is, if patients come in and pay you a dollar to take care of them and you spent 99 cents to do that, you're plus 1%. Does that make sense? But if your patients come in and pay you 99 cents and it costs you a dollar to take care of them, you're negative 1%. And you, that's unsustainable. You can't. You can't do that without borrowing money, existing on credit, until some credit financial crisis occurs like it already has in 2008. And then you're going to go down, like many hospitals already are. Okay, so that's what I would describe as unsustainable. By the way, we talked about the prophetic importance of where we are, and I really appreciate some of the comments that other speakers have done in their presentations and how obvious it is that we're nearing the end of time and the event uh, or flow of events that we watch happening around us. Have any of you thought, how would you operate the typical Seventh-day Adventist institution, tertiary healthcare facility, if you can't buy or sell? What will happen to those institutions? Will they even exist long enough to make it where the CEOs have to say, well, you know, we can't buy or sell, we're going to have to close operations. Will they even make it that far? How will you operate medical missionary work when you cannot buy or sell? Have you thought about that? Has anybody got that in their business meetings, talking about that as an agenda item? Well, if you think that's unsustainable, try this. CDC website indicates that $20 billion a year are attributed to antibiotic-resistant infection complications alone. Can, you, can, can Florida Hospital do that for very much longer? Loma Linda, Porter Healthcare, all the Adventist healthcare systems. Nothing against them. I trained at Loma Linda. Very thankful for that institution. But I'm not entirely convinced it's, it's going to be very sustainable for much longer, given conditions that we know and expect and are watching unfold. So is it sustainable? Is the institution where you work going to last another credit crisis like 2008? So, no, I don't think right now the present uh, model is sustainable. Sometimes I wonder if some of the things we do are even sanctioned. Let me draw your attention to a quote that I think I first discussed with John Kelly right here on the front row in the lawn in front of the basic science building near where we used to play hacky sack. With, you know, Dr. Who is Guthrie said that he played hacky sack. You know, anatomy. that was a long-standing tradition, evidently, because we played it after micro at the basic science building. Well, John and I would talked about this quote from the fifth volume of the Testimony, 443, paragraph 1. There are many ways of practicing the healing art, but there is only one way that heaven approves. I'm sorry, how many ways? Hmm, that doesn't sound like very many to me. Not a lot of options there. One way that heaven approves. God's remedies are simple agencies of nature that will not tax or debilitate the system through their powerful properties. Pure air, water, cleanliness, a proper diet, purity of life, and a firm trust in God are remedies for the want of which thousands are dying. I mean, how many thousands? Mm. I'll, give you, I'll give you some numbers here in a little bit. 
thousands, she said. Yet these remedies are going out of date because their skillful use requires work that people do not appreciate. Fresh air, exercise, pure water, clean, sweet premises are within the reach of how many? All. With how much expense? But little expense. But drugs are what? Expensive. Anybody here purchase drugs? You may have family members who are growing broke because they are on prescription medications. Drugs are expensive, both in the outlay of means and the effect produced upon the system. Fifth volume of testimony, page 443, paragraph 1. I have one more. Let me give you one more on, on that. Actually, this was the quote I think John and I talked about. Drugs never cure disease. This is healthful living. Healthful living, page 243. John and I remember we were on call in the VA hospital, third floor, and I was reading the Merck Manual, studying. And John pointed out, you know, the Merck Manual never has a section on cure. The ONC tab, ONC oncology. You can, go, you can see cures in that section. But nowhere else in the Merck Manual are cures discussed. Drugs never cure disease. I should have learned that back then. Drugs never cure disease. What do they do, though? They change its form and location. When drugs are introduced into the system, for a time, they seem to have a beneficial effect. Do they not? We have many publications that indicate beneficial effects. Those can be proven statistically. A change may take place, but the disease is not cured. It will manifest itself in some other form. The disease which the drug was given to cure may disappear, but only to reappear in new forms, such as skin diseases, ulcers, painful disease joints, sometimes in a more dangerous and deadly form. Nature keeps struggling. The patient suffers with different ailments until there is a sudden breaking down in her efforts. What do we call that in medicine? Got a patient here. You wouldn't believe the meds list. This patient is a train train wreck. This is a train wreck. Patient suffers with different ailments until there's a sudden breaking down and death follows. Every additional drug given to the patient will complicate the case, making the patient's recovery more hopeless. That was Healthful Living, page 243. You should talk to your anesthesiologist. What do you think you do all day? I give people drugs. But I, I, one of the reasons that attracted me to anesthesiology is I never offer a patient the explanation that what I'm going to do with all those drugs is going to cure them or make them better. I'm not against the use of drugs, uh, but drugs are at the heart of tertiary care medical center. On the right side of the heart, you've got pharmacy. On the left side, you've got surgical care. If you don't have surgeries and you don't have drugs, you can't turn a profit. If you can't turn a profit, no one can come through your door, and you will shut, and you will be unemployed. The director of pharmacy where I work is named David Kellogg. His grandfather was John Harvey Kellogg. So I sat down with Dave. We go to church together. We, they've got a nice farm out in the country. I visit with them. His wife, Tammy, chief nurse anesthetist, works with me in my department. I love the pharmacists. I love what they do for me. But I think we're, we're kind of coming to a council of Trent type of moment here. It's like the Roman Catholic Church met for about 20 years until someone finally stood up and said, you know, about the sola scriptura thing, if we go that way, we can't, we've got to go back to the Sabbath. We can't worship on Sunday. And so, okay, meeting adjourned. We're out of here. Sunday it is. Tradition? 
and the Bible. At some point, Adventist healthcare is going to have to come to the decision. We're either going to use drugs or we're not. Because if we don't, we can afford it. It'll be sustainable. We know it's sanctioned. No one's going to get hurt by it. By the way, let me give you those numbers. FDA, Federal Drug Administration. Website indicates 1.3 million injuries per year from medication errors. Got that from John Harvey Kellogg's grandson just a couple weeks ago. Medication errors, 1.3 million injuries. How many of you would have flown on an aircraft? I came on American Airlines. If AA's website said we only had 1.3 million injuries on our flights last year, would you fly that airline? <laughs> of course you wouldn't. But you refer people to organizations who state openly, we injure 1.3 million of you every year, and you're paying us to do it. Does that sound sanctioned to you? Does that sound like you would want to replicate those type of institutions on a global scale? Do you think God could use them the way he wants to in this hour of verse history? I mentioned Dave Kellogg, another good friend of mine at the hospital, Dr. Tom Allingham, naval officer, commander of the USS Mercy when Katrina hit New Orleans. He runs the intensive care unit, double boarded in ICU and anesthesiology, and, and a friend of mine. We were talking the other day, and uh, I said, Tom, you know, I usually see your patients, I used to see ICU patients come down on some type of dean or ozol, blah, blah, adine, renitidine, femotidine, omeprazole, pantoprazole. You can make a nursery rhyme like Dr. Soyce out of some of these things. <laughs> I don't see him coming out. What's the deal, Tom? It's, oh, well, grief. We learned that if we knocked out the proton pumps, you don't control the bacteria in the gut. That stuff crawls up the GI tract into the respiratory tract, and I have terrible pulmonary infections in my ICU patients. I don't give them PPIs anymore. Are you crazy? That's, we don't do that. He learned that the form of the disease changed locations when he was giving PPIs. Which I, do, do I remember? PPI is the, the most widely used pharmaceutical agent in the nation right now. Is that right? I think so. How about beta blockers? You know, I was a resident in Omaha, Nebraska. I was involved in the big SKIP protocol. You recognize the SKIP terms. I'm sure a lot of medical people here. Right, SKIP protocol. You've got to do your beta blockers. We were hammering people with beta blockers around 10 years ago because it was supposed to be so good and protective, you know, cardioprotective, until lo and behold, within one or two years, we realized how many more people had ischemia, heart attacks, strokes, hypotensive events in the perioperative period because we were making sure that the non-compliant patients who came to surgery were getting all those beta blockers right on schedule and they were having coronary events and ischemia. So that it changed the location and the timing of their disease. Another example for the PPIs, I was in uh, doing some anesthesia for some GI docs. I think Dr. Crutchmeyer is around here, and Dr. Marsa, some good GI doctors with us. I was doing propofol sedation, and we're talking, and he says, yeah, when I was a resident, we did all kinds of surgeries at the VA every day. Stomach ulcer patients come in. They were taking pain pills, usually NSAIDs. They get an ulcer, then you got to go and do surgery, close out. He says, those surgeries went away in a day as soon as the PPIs came out. We said, now, 25 years later, we learned that they don't have enough acid to assimilate the calcium in their diet. And now what do you think is happening? He's an internist. 
says, now all my patients are falling over, breaking their ankles, their elbows, their hips, their knees, and their ankles because they don't have enough calcium in their bodies. So what we did, we changed the form and the location of that patient's disease. You move them along this line of disease till it gets harder and harder, more and more expensive, more and more dangerous for them, every pill you add. And it'd be nice to see some of the guys who've written some great books on spirit prophecy and science document some of these nice examples of how drugs are doing exactly what we were told they would do if we formulated Adventist medical system around a common use of, of the pharmaceutical um, agents. I give another example. Um, good friend of mine, Dave Meyer. I call him my sawyer. Farmer Dave. He owns the sawmill that you see in that picture on the mid right of the, of the screen. You can't tell what it is, but it's a sawmill. He's come to help me a, a number of times on my property, which I'll get to in a little while. He uh, had Lyme's disease and um, it doesn't trust doctors at all. So he came to me and said, Frank, Frank, you got to help me. He's, a, he's, a, he's a, a veteran. I really don't want to go to the hospital. I really don't want to take drugs. I helped him as best I, I knew how and was able to at the time that he came, but eventually he got a prescription for doxycycline. Now, what comes to mind when you hear a, a farmer got prescribed doxycycline? That guy's going to get fried in the sun, which is exactly what happened to Farmer Dave, even though he wore his hat. He recently got written another prescription for doxycycline because the first one wasn't strong enough. So he went to Pennsylvania recently to stay in the snow with his, his daughter, who's a nurse. And he went shopping to get that prescription filled. Anybody here shop for doxycycline? They asked him to pay $600 out of pocket for that prescription of oxycycline. So Farmer Dave, being the good Tennessee wise boy, he has kept shopping around. So he finally came to either Walgreens or CVS, sold him the exact same prescription for $60. Now I ask you, why is it illegal for people to go to the UT Stadium in Knoxville and scalp a football ticket that's labeled $60 to $80 for $60 to $800 in the parking lot, but it's not illegal for Big Pharma to charge Farmer Dave $600 for doxycycline in one location and $60 in a different location? Woe unto you hypocrites. <laughs> Woe unto you hypocrites. You will pay $800 for a UT football ticket game but you won't let a guy that's priced at 60, but you won't let a patient pay 60 bucks for doxycycline and charge him 600. Woe unto you hypocrites. Dave, Farmer Dave. Great question, and I do intend to give some time for question and answer. What time is it now? Okay, wow. Would you, would you, he gets the first question. How's Farmer Dave doing? Okay. Right through my notes, make sure I'm staying on track here. I should recover all this stuff here. <sighs> sustainable, unsustainable, reproducible, undesired reproducibility, scalability. I said this was scalable. And we'll talk about home sanitariums, right? You see, my opinion is that every the Adventist home is the sanitarium of the future. Every single Seventh-day Adventist home contain, should, should contain people who either have 
trained for, I don't know, maybe a generation, even if you just became an Adventist this year, your church should be able to teach you the following things. There's, or there should be people in your home. <laughs> Each should have two, three meals a day eating tastefully prepared, highly nutritious food. I'm going to go through the New START acronym right here, okay? That's your nutritional therapy. You, you, you should have a diet, dietetics department in your home. That's the kitchen. Okay, you have that. That each Adventist home should be filled with people who exercise regularly. That's your physical therapy department. I don't care if you're working on a farm or a garden like I got, and I'll show you some pictures, or if you've got a little gym. If somebody comes to stay at your house, they should see you do some meaningful exercise and sweat. Physical therapy department. You don't even have to have a PhD in physical therapy to do that or be accredited. Every Adventist home that I've been in has a bathroom. Most of them, not all of them, have running Hot and cold water. There's your hydrotherapy department. You don't need PT uh, you know, certification in that, but you've got it. You should be understanding the use of sunlight and wisely use it for wellness. We call that heliotherapy. I should tell you a quick story about that. I'll come back to that. You should understand and avoid intemperance and be compassionate to those who bring their addictive behaviors, including your own family members who have those. You should understand proper breathing. You can illustrate that with exercise. And another one, under commonly used or underused, singing. Singing. People visit your home, maybe on a weekend, you have a little sundown, um, worship service, you sing some songs. Breathing, real important in, in singing. I like to play harmonica. It's the only instrument I know you can actually breathe in and play music and breathe out and play music. Every Adventist home should have some comfortable, inviting guest sleeping room. Though, let me give you a sleep study lab right there. So you get respiratory therapy, sleep study lab, psychotherapy, family worship time, morning and evening. Then you got, if they stay through the weekend, you've got the Sabbath to work on them too. So that's your behavioral therapy center right there. So all the major ingredients of tertiary healthcare medicine should be present and easily reproducible and scalable in Adventist homes. In the North American Division, we have 1.2 million members. If there are four people in every family, how many hospital beds would we have? 300,000 compared to the 915,000 presently registered in the U.S. If you look at Georgia Cumberland Conference, where I'm from, we have 280,000 members. That would be 70,000 God-sanctioned, not licensed, but there would be God-sanctioned beds overnight available for people to use. You go worldwide, Worldwide Seventh-day Adventist Church, our yearbook stated we had 173 hospitals and sanitariums punching out a whopping 18 million outpatient visits a year. If the NAD membership, or say the worldwide, we got uh, 18.5 million people. Divide that by four. You get 4.6 million homes. If they invited one person to stay the night four times a year, we would double the number of outpatient visits we could do. And if you did it every day for a year, you would have covered one-third the global population, would have been seen, treated, and educated in an Adventist home sanitarium. Sunlight. I mentioned sunlight. You know, sunlight is very underused. Though it looked like, to me, Dr. Nedley has seen some sun. You're looking pretty... Yeah, looking good, Neil. Looking good. Living in California. I'm, I'm turning pale. I'm usually coming out of one of those... Kodachrome Hispanics, if you leave me in the sun long enough, I darken up just a bit. 
But in the hills of Tennessee, I'm starting to pale out a little bit. I can tell Neil, Neil's getting the California sun. When I was in medical school, I went to the Loma Linda Library. They were throwing away books. I bought a book for 25 cents and took it home. There was a chapter in it called Heliotherapy. I had looked for years to see what people had used sunlight for in the healing arts. And finally found it. Showed my grandmother, who died while I was in uh, medical school. Showed it to her. She said, yeah, those were my instructors. I often wondered what she thought about Loma Linda throwing away the information that she had paid good money for in hard times to go learn that information. He opened up that book to the chapter called Heliotherapy. And I wish I could have shown it to you, but I had medical nudity. I didn't know how that would go over with Amen. So they had pictures of a young boy, probably about five years old, riddled with Potts disease. They got circles all over his body where the TB is just coming out of his bones. He looks horrible, sad. Next page over, completely plump, healthy, healthy, smiling. The year, I believe, was 1920-something. So what did they not use on that kid? They had no antibiotic agents for that kid treating Potts disease. Next page had a, a sickly woman laying in a bed, bag of bones, looked death warmed over. Two pages over, she's in a bikini up at Lake Arrowhead on skis, cured of TB. What do we need to use against extended drug resistance tuberculosis? Sunlight. Sunlight. It's not going to tax or debilitate the system. Last I checked, it was relatively affordable. <laughs> I'm convicted that no matter where you are on the planet, no matter what era you were born in, or the continent you worked on, or language you speak, God already has a mechanism to treat the illnesses that are present. As I've done anesthesia in Africa over in Bede with James Appel, who was a classmate of John and mine, I think I've seen one surgical infection in the filthiest place you can imagine. I, I know men who have shops in their garage that have fewer insects and more sterile than the operating room James and I used in Bede, Africa comminuted, broken, open, bone marrow hanging out fractures, days old, dragged through the motorcycle oil when they got hit by the car. We don't have post-op infections. Why would that be? Because we have antibiotics? Are you kidding me? That stuff comes by the freight load once a year from the Netherlands. We run out of drugs. Praise the Lord. <laughs> they can't even pay for this stuff, you know? Africa is sun-baked. In the U.S., if you get TB in your lab, you know what they do with it? When I asked, oh, man. I said, what do you do with that? That's, that's extended drug. You, you take that home. No, no, no. You push it to the back of the hood where we've got a UV light. This kills the stuff. We just sterilize it. There's no problem. So in Africa, we have TB wards. I round there. You don't use an N95 respirator. There's no negative pressure rooms in Africa. The stuff just doesn't spread. It doesn't survive because the hospital is built in an open platform. There's no... It's not all roofs. So it gets baked and killed by the sun. And the air that circulates prevents you from really inhaling many of the bacilli. And we tend to use water rather than this foolish alcohol gel stuff that leaves everything on your hands rather than running water. Right, so pure air. What did we read? For the want of pure air, sunlight, water. How many are dying? Thousands then. How about millions now? 
So uh, what time is it? We're running out of time. 45? 35. Oh, good. We got time. We got time. So every Adventist home should be a sanitarium. I think John probably was one of the first persons who brought that to my attention. Um, look here. I had another quote I wanted to share. This is from the Adventist home, page 448. She's talking about receiving guests and, and uh, entertaining them in your home. These are guests whom it will lay no, on you no great burden to receive. You will not need to provide for them elaborate or expensive entertainment. You will need to make no effort at display. The warmth of a genial welcome, a place at your fireside, a seat at your home table, the privilege of sharing the blessing of an hour of prayer would to many of these be like a glimpse of heaven. You, you can do your own research on, on, on how you can use your own home as a place of refuge or a, as I call them, home sanitarium. I'm not going to give you all the ones that I have because I, I do have a number of things I want to cover before we hit the question and answer. 55.4. This is one here I thought was important. I could say much, she says, on the subject of the location of our sanitariums. We have not yet learned all that there is to be learned. God calls for a reformation, and we are to locate our sanitariums in places more favorable to sanitary work. Notice she doesn't give any scathing rebuke for what's already been done. It's just that as we move forward, we need to do it differently and do it better. They should be established in quiet, secluded places. Anybody here know of a tertiary medical center that's in a quiet, secluded place? Yeah. I don't. I just don't see them. Where opportunity will be afforded for instructing the patients concerning the love of God and the Eden home of our first parents. If I had tried to do that back in some places I work, you open the door where the patient stays and sweep your arm across the armpit of America, San Bernardino County, and say, this was our Eden home, and the Lord has come and died for us so that we can regain it. It just that it doesn't really make an impression. But if you were to open the door where they're staying and show them vineyards or orchards and say, you know, back when God created Eden, it was a little bit more like this. Let me tell you the story of how we fell from that, how we lost and what God has done to help restore us to that once again. Now you're starting a conversation that can actually go somewhere. But not if you're too busy doing your EMR, answering the phone calls from the medical office, getting ready for JC to come, and I'm not talking about the JC we've been waiting for since AD 32. Joint commission is not as merciful and forgiving as Jesus Christ is. Different JC. A lot of people want to know how it was I came across the building that I happened to be in. I'm going to show you a picture of it. A number of years ago, I was in Loma Linda. I told the Lord that every time I move, I am going more rural. I cannot take this. And there was Spokane, Washington. Spokane, Washington, I went to the cornfields in uh, Nebraska outside of Omaha. From there, I sold my house and lived out of a suitcase for a number of years. And uh, then started um, a country living university online with Dave Westbrook. 
and uh, was it, I just followed his instructions for finding country property. So I found a place, a location that I could find employment, which is Cumberland Medical Center. Second question should be, should ask me about Cumberland Medical Center and why it exists. Interesting story. I spent a year renting rather than purchasing because, and, and I don't know the wisdom of that now because I might have bought in, in neighborhoods of the county that were very drug infested, with methamphetamines in particular. And I didn't know the area well enough to know any better. So fortunately I rented for a year, found out where not to buy, and then restricted my, my, my search. I was using a real estate agent, I asked her, I wanted some southern exposure for solar panels and a garden. I wanted some land to do agriculture and, and, and such. I wanted uh, water if I, could, if I could get it. It needed to be um, about 1,800, 1,500 square feet so I wouldn't have to heat or cool it very much and then I could furnish it with just the stuff that I had had in storage. Um, and it needed to be under a certain price because I didn't want to go into debt or ask for credit to buy the place. She didn't seem to listen. For a year, I got some really bad options. So finally, I just said, you know, thanks, I've been helped enough. Uh, I, and, I, and I did a quick search for foreclosures, because as I thought and prayed more about it, I felt that after the credit crisis of 2008, it made sense to me that when the day of judgment occurs, no one's going to be able to say, Lord, I just couldn't afford country property and to obey the council and get out of the cities and find a place to live. I'm sorry, I just couldn't afford it. So I thought, well, you know, if, if, if you're going to avoid that, why don't you just make a bunch of country property just dirt cheap? Maybe get it in foreclosure, maybe have people build stuff and then die and move away. I didn't know. But I, I was confident that something like that was happening out there and I was going to find it. So I did a quick search on foreclosures. The second house that came up on the screen was the one that I eventually bought. Fell in love with it when I drove up the driveway, saw it open up into the woods. I guess I should show you this a little bit. I'll show you in a second. And um, went down and knocked at the neighbor's house to figure out why the yellow tape was across, you know, police line, do not cross. I mean, maybe it was a homicide or something. I didn't know. I was a little <laughs> concerned about what I was getting myself into. The list price was within my budget. I think it listed for like $140,000 roughly. And uh, I had sold my house in Omaha for $129 and uh, saved aside money for solar panels, garden, you know, greenhouse, garage, whatever you wanted. So it was within the budget. Uh, of course, the real estate agent was totally opposed to this. She had wanted me to buy a $500,000 home so she can get 10% commission. Talked to the neighbor, and she said, she came to the door, Gail, Gail Ford. Knocked on, and, and she looked to be about 70 years old. Opened the door slowly. Said, yes, can I help you, Sonny? Or something like that. Said, yeah, I just, you know, the, the house for, at the top of the hill is for sale. I noticed some... You know what the story is? I mean, it's in foreclosure. What happened? Is anything wrong up there? There's police tape. And she looked at me. The first words out of her mouth was, you do realize this is a retirement community. <laughs> I said, no. I love the house, though. And so I just kept talking with her. The story on the house, which I developed, my understanding developed much later. As I met the people, I bought the place in two weeks, moved in. I learned some things later. That uh, a, a rich uh, um, fire arson inspector from the state of Florida had moved up with his wife. His wife had designed a bed and breakfast, and they were going to name it the Journey's Inn. And um, he got cancer and died before it was completed. They had worked on it 10 years. 
And uh, if, you, if you come to Cumberland County, you'll understand why you need people to work on your house for 10 years, because every few months, people will just get drunk, not show up. Hunting season comes. They disappear for four months. They want to go fishing with the grandkids from June to... So for 10 years, they'd been building this place. And uh, she had three or four other homes. So when it fell into four... She just walked away. She, 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 did, she abandoned it. Squatters came in, stripped the copper pipe and the wires for methamphetamine uh, funding. And the, the, the house that had initially listed for $900,000, I purchased for one hundred and twelve. And uh, when I went to make the offer, the real estate agent, of course, didn't believe that I was going to get the house because someone else had already put in an offer. And I said, don't worry about it. If, if it's supposed to be mine, I'll get it. This was Friday at 5 p.m. I was on call until Monday. There was no way I could go sign the papers to purchase the house, even if they accepted my offer. So I called her on Monday morning. She said, yeah, the, the finances fell through for the other people. It's still for sale. Do you want me to make an offer? I said, yes, make an offer for 1000 more than what's listed and tell them I'll pay cash. So I got it. This is the vineyard. There were already grapevines producing. And um, my mother planted some seed from uh, Brother Carlisle over in Greenville, Tennessee. And these now are two years old. Planted 12 grapevines. We'll probably burn the others because they're infested with a fungus. This was the apple orchard that was already bearing when I got there. And the small trees are the apples that I've added, some of which we did, Tina, at Greenville, uh, at the grafting class that the church did. We have some of those apple trees that we grafted that day uh, growing on the property. And uh, we st I started a garden. Uh, uh, I used raised beds, and you can see some winter cover, cover uh, drapes there that I have. About an acre and a half of my land is cleared. I purchased five and a quarter acres, which came with uh, this building along with two outbuildings. One is a barn made out of old traditional Tennessee hewn, hand-hewed logs. That's not pictured. And then the garage that you see on the left, which is where I lived for several months while I was remodeling and fixing the problems that had accumulated over time in the building you see on the right, which is what I call the lodge. The cabin there was uh, put in 1972 on that spot from four out of Pikeville. They disassembled them and brought them together as one. And then the lodge, which is those four gables you see towards the right, extending back into the, into the rear of the picture, that is the addition that the previous owners had been working on for 10 years, which then uh, was stopped uh, when uh, Archie Edwards passed away. This is a side view. Uh, the addition is 5,000 square feet. I wasn't planning on that large of a place. You know, that wasn't listed. I didn't know it. Uh, I went out thinking there was, an, there was this log cabin built in 1972, had pictures of the inside, and one other room, which was the, what they called the, the, the addition of 500. My, inter, my Internet Explorer didn't show the whole paragraph. And so when I actually got to the real estate agent, she printed out the page and it said an addition of 5,000 square feet. I didn't know that. The picture just showed a room that was 10 by 50. So I thought that was the addition. Great, I can do lectures there. There's 5,000 square feet. That chimney is about five to six feet across. So it's really nice to have fire in the winter. You can have like four people sitting in front of the fireplace with their toes up on the hearth. But um, 
Let me read you a quote that I got from Spirit of Prophecy that I read after I had purchased this property. It's become one of my favorite quotations from the Spirit of Prophecy because it's so personal. By the way, this, the retirement community is the Battle Creek of the United Church of Christ. The United Church of Christ, down the street from my house, um, was the church that was associated with the medical missionary named May Cravath Wharton, a physician who graduated from the University of Michigan and came to the same tra train station in Crossville that Sergeant York left to go to World War I. She arrived there as a medical missionary and worked for 45 years before opening Cumberland Medical Center in Crossville, Tennessee. She started with a two-room sanatorium, she called it. You should read her biography called Dr. Woman of the Cumberlands, May Cravath Wharton. She mentions, and I found in historical documents in our museum, visiting an unusual and unique, I think was the phrase, wasn't it? An unusual and unique sanitarium in Madison, Tennessee. And she names a man by the name of E.A. Sutherland, who she studied with during her stay. Do you know how many patients she lost during the Spanish influenza? One. Do you know how many people died from the Spanish influenza? 18 million. 18 million. So there is a connection between the Seventh Adventist Church and Cumberland County, Tennessee. But it's a very liberal church. They have a lesbian woman minister who has eaten supper with me. And that community is very open to vegetarianism and are very interested to hear what Adventists believe and are delighted that there's this doctor who's bought the cabin that was abandoned on the top of the hill next to the home that Dr. May Cravath Warden lived in. She would have been my neighbor 50 years ago. Seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 102. The Lord will work upon human minds in unexpected quarters. Some who are apparently enemies of the truth will, in God's providence, invest their means to develop properties and erect buildings. In time, these properties will be offered for sale at a price far below their cost. Our people will, if they knew, I didn't know. Our people will recognize the hand of providence in these efforts, in these offers, and will secure valuable property for use in educational work. They will plan, excuse me, thus men of means are unconsciously preparing auxiliaries that will enable the Lord's people to advance his work rapidly. In various places, Properties are to be purchased to be used for sanitarium purposes. Our people should be looking for opportunities to purchase properties away from the cities on which are buildings already erected and orchards already bearing. Land is a valuable possession. I have been repeatedly shown that we are, it is not wise to erect mammoth institutions. Why? 
Seventh volume of the Testimonies, page 102. Why shouldn't we do mammoth institutions? Because they're unsustainable. And much of the practices that are required are unsanctioned. And they are not reproducible. And you will not be able to advance the work quickly. I was really excited to hear Dr. Nedley talk about the nursing program. They're going to be pumping out some nurses that can go to help churches and homes quickly advance and prepare and reproduce what they're doing at a large scale. You know, as much as I like the Lifestyle Centers of America, of which a close friend of ours, Dr. Sherrard, worked, that place was non-reproducible. There is no conference, no church, no local. They're going to put out two million bucks and staff a, a place that big. But every single Adventist home can be a sanitarium. You should be qualified to have those new star elements in your own home that people can come and watch and learn from you as you do those things. Okay, questions. I had to, you had asked about Dave, right, Dave. So one of the first things that I, you know, my, my home sanitarium is not even done, but people have already started to come. It's just like the clinic I built near Darfur. Before the cement is even dry, we've got governors coming from across the desert by motorbike or donkey trying to get the doctor to see them. We haven't even opened the clinic. So Walt Cross calls me up and says, my daughter Ashley wants to have a home birth, but her and her husband haven't finished building their home. Can we have your, our, our, my grandbaby at your home? She said, yeah, sure, come over. I have room. I, have room. <laughs> I said, pick a room. So they picked a room. And so I wasn't planning on it, but the doctor's in was first a birthing center. <laughs> Trust me, the cost that, that that family paid to have their child is much, much, much less than what they would have paid for a conventional birth. Gail, the one who opened the door, has an undiagnosed neuromuscular uh, fatigue uh, syndrome. and She's doing much better with a little bit of aromatherapy and some massage and such, whereas the doctors at Vanderbilt and other places haven't really helped her. She hasn't been impressed with them, but she likes the natural approach that we take. She was talking with Walt when Walt came to see the, the grandchild. Walt got her started on some things from, uh, that he has over at the mustard seed. Uh, Gail starts talking with Dave, my sawyer, who comes over, and I put Dave in touch with, actually put him in touch first with, with Walt Cross because they were standing in my driveway talking. And Dave got some uh, Alimed, which is an exceptionally concentrated form of garlic. And uh, he, within two days, it was like a miracle, started feeling much, much better. And uh, so he's up in Pennsylvania recuperating from his limes, doing fantastic. Um, I, don't rem- I don't think he... Uh, I don't remember if he went ahead and bought the doxycycline or not, because he'd already gone through one course, wasn't impressed with it. He went to see a specialist for limes up there. But Dave is doing great. He taught me how to use the sawmill that I showed in that other picture. And one thing I'm doing with the, uh, the trees that came down during the ice storm, I don't know if many of you know, but Cumberland County was a disaster area. FEMA came, like, took them two months to come. We lost 3,000 light poles. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm building furniture out of the wood that's down. Because if, you've not, if you haven't noticed, you go shopping for furniture. If you want to furnish a room, <laughs> this is even like four or $5,000 minimum. Question. You might refer them to it if they need it. But I think I tried to make the, the case that acute tertiary care medicine is unsustainable, unsanctioned, and it's not scalable. So it doesn't really have a part. And not that I, I don't have a partner. I do. I practice 
you know, anesthesiology. I sure I was glad that when Dave Kellogg had appendicitis, he could come to OR, our ORs and have surgery. Now, there are places for it. Um, but by and large, as a world global uh, thrust for medical missionary in the last times, as one of the other speakers pointed out, it will be the last thing we do. And if it's the last thing we do and we cannot buy or sell, I can assure you, you will not be in an acute care tertiary hospital. So if you're going to get ready for that, you need to change the way you think. Another question? Yeah, they keep coming up the hill. It's like, hey, we want to see your place. I just had a block party. Retired people have block parties. And 15 people came over to my house, and we, we gathered around the fireplace and had dinner, talked about the food they were eating, which it grew in the garden, uh, and talked a little bit about vegetarianism and the hopes for teaching people how to care for themselves and avoid being transferred to Cumberland Medical Center. And when you're in your 70s, that's the kind of a conversation people are interested in having. So... That's kind of what's going on right now. I hope to involve some younger uh, people so they can learn how to do drywall, some basic carpentry, gardening, hydrotherapy. There's not a lot of places you can go that's going to teach you that. Usually people drop out of high school and fall into a journeyman position to learn carpentry or, or construction. It's not considered a very noble pursuit. But Ellen White makes it clear that if, if, if you can't do those type of things, you're really not ready for the mission field. It's true. You're not ready. And I've been to the mission field, and that's why I learned how to build super adobe uh, buildings for, you know, Dafur area and, and over in Chad, because I just didn't feel I wanted to, to pay seven to $9,000 for a container, seven to $9,000 to ship that container to another co continent, several thousands of dollars to bribe your way through every single customs checkpoint until it reaches your site and then $2,500 per head to fly an American over there with a cordless drill to screw together those one-day ovens. Okay? It just wasn't something I wanted to do. Now, I appreciate Maranatha's work, and I've slept in their buildings, but not more than just a few nights because it's intolerable. I slept outside with the gunfire in the streets of Mundu. So I just don't think that, that not being able to build is, is not a good uh, characteristic for a missionary. You've got to be able to build substantially, I think, substantially, I think is the phrase she uses. Is, does that answer your question? You yeah, follow overnight? Do you have programs going, or do you just... No programs yet. No one overnight. Your mom's helping you with the food? Yeah, I have a retired mother who helps. She lives in the garage apartment after I fi I'm finishing her apartment in the lodge. <laughs> someone, someone had mentioned the economics. Am I done? I think I'm out of time. Some from Canada asked me about the economics. You would do with, you know, finances and those things. My accountant has told me if we set it up as a wellness education center rather than a bed and breakfast, the doctor's in idea, it's, it be, can be uh, financially and, and uh, tax and law, from a law stand, standpoint, much more at, uh, advantageous. So she can be an employee. She can live there. I cannot. I live in my cabin. Yes, it's physically attached, but there's doors that bolt and effectively separate the two facilities. The two facilities are run off, off uh, different energy sources and power and different footprints. And so all that stuff can be separated and, 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 and not have to run it like a, a restaurant or a bed and breakfast. It is primarily my home. And anybody who wants to come and visit me in my home, and if I invite them to stay for three months, it's my home. I'm free to do that. 
whether or not they pay me money or not doesn't really matter because it's my home. You know, if you, if you have somebody stay at your night, stay at your house for a night or two, you're going to spend 20 to $30 extra in food and hot water and a place for them to stay. How's that compare to the $1 million per bed per night figure? Pretty favorable. I think we're out of time. Just wondering about liability issues. Have you considered those if one were to yeah. open their home for, as a health education center? Yeah. It's about as dangerous as you opening some, your, your house for a potluck on Sabbath and talking about the sermon. That's how much more liable you are. Because it's your home. It's not a business. If you want to do businesses, you're going to get in some legal technicalities that, are, that probably need lawyers and accountants. But if it's your home, it's your home. That's scalable. Another question. All right, but you're talking about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am. How are you managing to make this sustainable on its own? Well, there's no mortgage. I pay $490 in taxes per year. I can cut wood to heat it. Um, with three stories, the first floor is pretty cool in the summer, even without electricity, until I get solar panels. Uh, a lot of people in that area, I mentioned Dave Meyer. He's, he was the CSA farmer. A lot of people in the area want locally grown food. So you, you can sustain yourself with uh, local produce, uh, you're certainly not going to make an anesthesiologist's salary. But it is enough to feed yourself. We, we had a meal the other night with, with everything that came out of our garden. It is feasible, but people are not used to living like that. Your great-grandparents were. Your grandparents probably knew how. Your parents might not. You probably definitely don't. And your kids, I can assure you, would never imagine living out of a garden. That's a problem. That is a problem. If you truly believe that there's coming a time where you cannot buy or sell, those are serious problems that no one seems to want to address. But yeah, sustainability, you've got agriculture, you've got um, basically spa-type services like massage. I have a dry sauna, entertainment system on the inside, and you don't have to have that. But people are looking for a place to come and be to enjoy themselves. Um, yeah, I don't have TV or internet. I have internet, but it doesn't work well, so I don't consider it internet. Another question, and yes, if you need to go, please go. If it's, and then back here. So what I understand you're saying is it's not a business, it's your home. So you can't charge? Because then I can if I want. You can take donations. I think technically, legally, you can take donations. I don't need to right now. My accountant, who's out of Nashville, is also something Seventh Avenue, says, look, if you start having people there more nice than not, we'll talk. And we can arrange things. And, but, and you can probably charge for stuff like that. But for now, I'm not, I'm not charging any money. I mean, how many of you charge people to come over and have potluck? Yeah. <laughs> so everybody seems to want to go with, well, how am I going to make this a business? How can I make money and, and, and such? But that'll come. The Lord, can, Lord will take care of that. You just need to get operational first. Another question, and then maybe we ought to stop. No, my malpractice is for anesthesiology, not for labor and delivery. Though I have delivered, my, these hands have delivered five kids at CMC because the labor and delivery couldn't contact the OBGYN in time, and so I caught the babies. I can do that. Let me tell you a little inside secret. Whether you're liable or not, if somebody wants to sue you, they will. Whether or not you should be held accountable for the actions, 
of, of bad outcomes or not will be decided by a jury of nobody even near your peers. If you're frightened that someone's going to sue you, this is not the line of work for you. If that's all it takes to keep you from helping someone uh, and spend time with, with you in your own home and offer them assistance, this, this isn't your line of work. People have pushed out babies for, what, 6,000 years without labor and delivery? And I have good friends who are obstetricians, and you know, no, no disrespect, but you know, the price you pay for no specialized care is a higher death rate. That's the price you pay. Um, but it, it will be the price that we're going to get back to because people can't pay for labor and delivery services. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.